The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please remain standing as we pray. Lord, as your gospel text says, when we lift up our eyes, may we only see you this morning. We pray that we might believe the truths of our Hebrews text. We ask, Father, that we would have soft hearts to receive your implanted word. Lord, we do pray for those one or two people who might be doubting your faithfulness this morning. We ask that your tenderness would meet those who believe the faithfulness is only an idea, not a reality. Lord, we ask that you'd unpack your word for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This Sunday marks the fourth week of our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And the series is entitled, Consider Jesus. I don't know about you, but I feel the need to consider Jesus more and more as I get older. Wars like those in Gaza and Israel, wars like those in Ukraine are ongoing and they're horrific. The political divide in America only seems to be growing more broadly in the world and America included. It's becoming more and more post-Christian with decreasing church attendance. I find myself feeling at a loss on practical solves for any of these hard realities. Rather than engaging, it feels easier to distract myself, to return to the thoughts and habits that feel safe, easy, and comfortable. You know, I wonder if the original audience of the book of Hebrews felt the same way. As you may recall, Hebrews was penned to Jewish Christians. And these people were experiencing challenging times as well. In chapter 10, the author notes how this community is enduring sufferings. They've been publicly expo exposed to reproach and affliction. They've had property taken away. All of this is because of their Christian beliefs. Now these hard times may have tempted some to fall back to the safe and comfortable ways of old, to old religious practices, to old ways of Jewish thinking and living. It likely felt difficult to remain faithful to their new convictions and ways of living. But God wanted something different for this community. 
through the author of Hebrews, God shepherds this specific group of people. God gives them a word of truth to enable them to press on, to remain faithful amidst the hard realities of life. And as we explore God's word to them, we can glean God's truth for us today. With this in mind, let's look at Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. The author of the book of Hebrews in our text pleads, he pleads for his readers to consider Jesus, to consider Jesus. And he has three specific aspects in mind. He wants them to consider Jesus' faithfulness to God, to consider Jesus' superiority to Moses, and to consider Jesus' faithfulness to his people. If you want to read along and see those for yourself, turn uh, with me in those red Bibles in front of you to page 1002, or call up the text on any device that you have in front of you. Diving into our text, verse one of chapter three reads, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The author of Hebrews gives a firm and practical exhortation in this first verse. Consider Jesus, consider Jesus. This isn't a simple suggestion or a call to casually glance at Jesus from time to time. It's a command to metaphorically fix our eyes on him without blinking, to keep absolute focus on him. The author of our texts wants his readers to think clearly, carefully, and consistently about Jesus. Now remember, the audience of this book were Jewish Christians. Remember, he refers to holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So while the author would no doubt be delighted for a non-Christian to consider Jesus, in the context of our verses, he's talking to those who are already believers. Therefore, if you consider yourself a Christian, this exhortation to consider Jesus is also for you. You too must consider, continually consider Jesus. Never stop thinking about him. He must be the lens through which you see the world. Many of us spend large amounts of time at places like work, on social media, in certain stores, on golf courses, or even in the car. I wonder what it would look like for you to consider Jesus as you go about these endeavors. Could you keep Jesus top of mind with a simple memory verse, a simple Bible verse? Maybe a breath prayer that you're praying over and over? Or maybe it's having a specific song on repeat? This is key because in this world, something's always trying to buy your attention. You know, I wonder if the best firewall to worldly distraction is having no mental bandwidth to give. What if our attention was so set on Jesus that we were too busy to be distracted by worldly realities? It's not like we would be at a loss for material to consider. You see, there's always something to consider about Jesus, 
something worthy of our attention. We could go to John 1 and consider how Jesus was at the beginning of creation. We could consider Jesus' humility when he takes on the form of a servant in Philippians 2. We could consider Jesus' current rule and reign at the right hand of God seen in the book of Revelation. But for the purposes of this morning, our author wants us to consider how Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Recall verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This morning, I want to focus specifically on the idea of Jesus as the apostle of our confession. We'll consider Jesus as the high priest when we unpack chapter four later this month. So returning to this idea of Jesus as the apostle of our confession. We know about the 12 apostles of Jesus, but we aren't as familiar with this idea of Jesus as an apostle. In fact, the only place in all of scripture where Jesus is described as an apostle is in this text, in Hebrews 3. The word apostle means one who is sent, and Jesus was sent. He was sent by God to accomplish salvation for his people. As we learned in chapter one, Jesus is God's divine, final, visible, and spoken word. And as John mentioned last Sunday, and we, from chapter two, Jesus was sent to share in our humanity in order to perfect it. He was sent to share in our death to defeat it. And now Jesus shares his inheritance with us and gives us glory and honor. The text says that he's the apostle of our confession. He's the apostle of our beliefs. The faith we confess orbits around Jesus, not just an idea or an unfamiliar object, but a divine human sent by God who walked among us. Let me explain further. Someone once asked the famous thinker C.S. Lewis what set Christianity apart from other religions. To this he replied, there are religions, many and ancient, that believe God appeared in human form. Christianity is uniquely a religion in which God comes down. Let me say that one more time. Christianity is uniquely a religion in which God comes down. His unbounded love bridges the gulf gap, the great gulf between him and us. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. God didn't remain in the clouds above, distant, unfamiliar, hard to hear, handing down commands. God took on flesh and he came to earth and he faithfully accomplished everything we could never do ourselves. Consider that. Verse two reads, consider Jesus who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. You know, it's easy to assume that Jesus' faithfulness to God's will was a simple walk in the park. But may I remind you that Jesus was fully human like us, Luke 22 details Jesus' thoughts and experience the night before he went to the cross to defeat death. 
describes how Jesus knelt down and prayed. The text reads, in being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was even after an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. Jesus knew his faithfulness would come at great personal cost. It would come with great pain, great anguish. And yet in that intense moment of anguish on the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was saying, God, I will be faithful to you, even if it kills me. My guess is we'd all struggle to be that faithful. Many of us struggle to be faithful even in the little ways that we'd like. Jesus' faithfulness was the greatest and grandest demonstration ever witnessed by humanity. Jesus' faithfulness was like but even greater than that of Moses. So if you recall, Moses first comes onto the scene in the Old Testament in Exodus 2. Years later, God sends Moses as an apostle to Pharaoh to free his chosen people from slavery in Egypt. Through Moses, God gave his people the covenant law. This is essentially a rule book on how God's chosen people should live. You know, as 21st century Christians, we appreciate Moses, but we don't admire Moses nearly as much as the original audience of Hebrews would have. Jews at that time revered Moses and believed the Messiah would be a Moses-like figure. Moses had an unmatched and a unique relationship with God. Unlike other prophets, Moses spoke with God face to face. He even beheld the very form of God behind the cleft of the rock. Therefore, Moses was and is in an entirely different category than any of the prophets of that day. You know, he's our modern Billy Graham or Tim Keller, or maybe in 20 years, Reverend Dr. John Yates. <laughs> and yet, even with this in mind, the author of Hebrews wants us to realize that Moses' glory still pales in comparison to that of Jesus. And here's why. Look at verse three and four. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Both verse three and verse four begin with the word for. The author is building a case here for Jesus' superiority to Moses. He uses an analogy to describe the different degrees of glory. He says that a builder of the house has more the, he says that a builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. Here's what's going on. It's a bit technical, so lean in, listen closely. When the author speaks of the house of God, he's just referring to the people of God. The house of God is just the people of God. Moses had a special role within the household of God, within the people of God. He was the leader of God's chosen people. 
And yet, according to Hebrews 3, Moses was simply part of that community. He too was under God's law as a human being, as a member of the nation of Israel. So while he may be in the penthouse, he's still just part of the house itself. Jesus, on the other hand, is the builder of the house, and the builder always deserves more glory. So when you look at incredible buildings like the Egyptian pyramids or the Roman Colosseum, you may marvel at the beauty and grandeur of those structures. They're epic, unquestionably. But if you spend any time thinking of those structures, you undoubtedly marvel at the builders. How did they forge those massive structures from stone? How did they raise those heavy blocks without iron mechanical cranes? The author gives an even bolder claim in verse four when he states that the builder of all things is God. So here's what's going on. If Moses is the house and Jesus builds the house, but God builds all things, we see that the author is revealing Jesus is God. Because Jesus, who's the builder of Moses, is also God who's the builder of all things. Therefore, when you take verse four and three together, the quick hand version is, Jesus deserves more glory because he is God and God makes all things. Consider this for these Christian Jews, right? They grew up believing Moses was the gold standard. And now they're learning that this new man, Jesus, who walked among them, is Moses' maker. How much more so does he deserve their consideration? That's powerful. That would have been mind-shifting for these people. The author goes on to add another argument to strengthen the superiority of Christ over Moses, the difference between a son and a servant. Look at verse five in the beginning of six. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses is a servant while Jesus Christ is a son. The Greek translation servant is a word that actually references an individual whose personal service is freely rendered. This word has a more tender tones to it, more than it has overt, overt connotations of servility, right? So they're saying even though Moses is a servant, he's offering his services freely. Even though Moses was a great man, he still was a servant with a particular role. His assignment was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So what Moses represented as a leader, as a prophet, as a lawgiver, was never complete in and of itself. There was more to come. He was to set the stage for a fuller revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. The mission of the servant Moses, great though it was, important though it was, worthy of admiration as it was, simply prepares the way for the greater mission of the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus would be the greater Moses for God's people. Jesus Christ wasn't and he isn't faithful over God's house as a servant. He's faithful over the house as a son. So I want you to think with me about the differences between a son and a servant 
in relation to a household. So a son bears total ownership and responsibility for the household, while the servant simply renders their time and energy. A son has final say over all household matters, where a servant is limited to individual spheres within the house. A son provides for the household from his inheritance, whereas a servant draws from it as they receive wages. Restating this simply, as the son of God's house, Jesus has more ownership, responsibility, authority, and investment than a servant like Moses ever could. Now, why does this matter? What's the good news in this? Read with me the last verse in our text of verse six. With all this in mind, and we are his house. We are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This matters because we are Jesus' household. Therefore, those realities are directed towards us. And this is my third point today. Jesus' faithfulness to us. Jesus has total ownership over us. He will make sure that the work he started in us comes to completion. Responsibility. He feels absolutely responsible for us so that he's dedicated to our care, our well-being, and our development. Authority. He has absolute authority over us. Therefore, he can make good on his desires for us. He can make claims on us. Investment. And he's willing to give us his total investment in the form of his ongoing advocacy because we are his house if indeed we hold fast. Now that word if, that can feel a little sobering. What if we struggle holding fast? What if we struggle boasting in our hope? Now before I wanna explore this, I wanna remind you of the structure of Hebrews three. Who takes center stage in these verses? It's Jesus Christ. We can only consider our roles, our responsibilities, after we consider Jesus's. This is why the structure of the Christian life is responsive. Jesus's actions and accomplishments, they always lead the conversation. They're what prompt a response. You wanna know how to faithfully love your neighbor? Consider first the one who laid his life down for even his enemies, Jesus. You wanna know how to faithfully serve those around you? Consider first the one who took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, Jesus. You wanna know how to be an evangelist for Christ? Consider first the apostle of our confession who was sent from heaven on, on our behalf, Jesus. Consider Jesus first. You know, it's from this vantage point, mindful and secure of Jesus' faithfulness and superiority, that we can address the conditional if statements found at the, verse, at the end of verse six. Remember, it says, in a, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence, confidence, if indeed we hold fast to our boasting and our hope. What is our confidence 
what hope do we boast in? The answer to all of these questions is Jesus. Jesus is not only the starter of the conversation, he's also the finisher. Our confidence is not rooted in the reality that we're good enough, it's that Jesus is. We can hold fast our confidence in knowing that Jesus confidently holds us. You know, our confidence isn't just in Jesus' faithfulness at the end of times. It's also confidence in Jesus' faithfulness in the meantime. Jesus' ongoing presence and faithfulness can be seen when he helps us with that challenging work need. We can see that faithfulness when he highlights that exact scripture that speaks to our heart in that moment of need. We can see his faithfulness through his prompting of a friend who unexpectedly cares for our need. Our confidence is in the past, present, and future faithfulness of Jesus. Likewise, what is our boast? Is it in the deeds of our flesh, what we've accomplished in this world? Is it in some special knowledge of God? Never. Our boast is in the cross of a crucified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteous sacrifice grants us admission into our heavenly calling and hope, now and forever. He stands in the gap for us. Therefore, we can have hope that we will one day be with Jesus forever because Jesus has already promised that that will be true. It's an extraordinary reality. The very application of our text at the end leads us back to the very first exhortation of the text in the beginning. Consider Jesus. I mentioned before that it's challenging to consistently consider Jesus. It's especially difficult when we're left to our own devices. And this leads us to another point. Christians must consider Jesus communally. Christians must consider Jesus communally. It's in community that we brainstorm and practice ways to consider Jesus. Hebrews 3, 1 started by saying, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Remember, we've been referencing again and again the idea of household. Notice afresh the plural use of the word we. In verse six, what's the commonality in all these words? Plurality. You aren't meant to consider Jesus alone. You're meant to do it alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ, together. You wanna hold fast to your confidence? Commit to a small group here at Holy Trinity. You wanna continually boast in your hope? Find a safe group of Christians where you can serve and pray together. The text subtly reminds us that we need to root and ground ourselves in a community that has a clear and solid view of Jesus. There are so many distractions in this world that fellow Christians help keep us moored to the sure and steady anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ. With everything going on in our world, 
with all the distractions vying for our attention, with so much trying to buy our attention. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus' faithfulness. He was faithful to God, and he's still faithful to you. And it's only after we consider these things that any response makes sense. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want just content. We want courage and conviction. We don't want just facts. We want faith. So we ask, Father, that you would take your word and that you would work it deep into our soul that we might perpetually, continually, always consider you, Jesus. Help us to consider your faithfulness to us that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Amen.